Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Sustainable Investing Perspectives on the UBS Conversations podcast channel. Joining me for the conversation today, glad to welcome back Amantia Muhadini, Sustainable Investing Strategist Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as glad to welcome Joe Elegante of UBS Asset Management. Joe is a Senior Portfolio Manager and is the Lead Portfolio Manager for Sustainable Equity Portfolios. So Amantia, Joe, it's great to be with you both on the podcast today. Thank you for spending some time with our listeners, our clients. Looking forward to the conversation. I know we have a lot we want to cover over the next 30 minutes or so, so we'll get right to it. And Amantia, as a good starting point, I want to highlight that this month's Sustainable Investing Perspectives publication, it did provide a past present future overview of three top of mind topics investors should be paying attention to as we continue to move through 2022, covering global decarbonization, social justice, and SI regulation and practice. So Amatia, to kick off our conversation, could you cover why it is so economically important for companies to begin the process of decarbonization and maybe outline what this process will look like through the next decade as companies and countries work towards net zero commitments. Of course, thanks, Ben, and great to join you uh, and to, to kick off this new year of our conversations around sustainable investing perspectives. So as you said, really, since this is the January edition, we took the opportunity to do a look back and a look forward. And this topic of decarbonization is, is one that is top of mind, was a key thing that we talked about in 2021, and we expect it to remain really top of mind for investors um, here in the U.S. and across the world. Now, it's also the, it, it's part and parcel of the conversation of the net zero global transition, which is also one of our um, key ideas in the, in the year ahead and the key, uh, one of the key thoughts that, that we, we look at, not just for the year ahead in 2022, but really for the decade ahead. Part of the reason why this remains so important is that uh, we're just seeing a continuation and, and a continued highlighting of the economic costs that climate change is starting to in, uh, impose on societies, as well as the imperative and opportunities that are created by the energy transition. So really, I mean, one, one data point just to quote here, and, and there have been many, and we'll see more and more of this kind of analysis likely, is from a Swiss reinsuring company, which noted that uh, economic losses from natural disasters in 2021 amounted to about 259 billion U.S. dollars. And this was, importantly, a 20% increase for their data from the 2020 numbers. Now, these types of losses are expected to grow at a faster pace than global GDP um, as a result of ongoing urbanization and exacerbating climate change, which is why um, it's imperative for us to think about this climate transition, um, but also look at it in the face, you know, and, and look at the challenges as well as the opportunities that are created. So one of the, the ways to think about this and, and what we're keeping an eye on is how it, um, this energy transition is interacting with surging energy prices, and in particularly as we have structurally underinvested in fossil fuel supply chains um, that really led to a sharp uptick in, in, in demand uh, for energy as, as economies were opening, and that created a pricing mismatch and, and surges in energy prices in the second half of last year, um, and potentially with more room to run kind of moving forward. 
So as we think of this as one challenge, as we think of the objective of uh, continuing to maintain, you know, price stability, energy affordability, and accessibility for all, as we have increasing globalization and, and um, industrialization across the world, we also think of these other objectives and uh, related to decarbonization and to the fact that um, it's already starting to hit companies' bottom lines, really. Um, natural disasters are one way in which we as investors and, and, and companies really are impacted, but really as we think of environmental policies that are driving uh, also maturation in carbon pricing in some markets, that's another way in which companies that are covered uh, in, in regulated markets will have to adjust and adapt and move to decarbonize faster as carbon prices are really um, kind of shooting up and, and so with, with much room to grow across multiple markets where there's uh, exchange-traded systems for, for carbon credits. So really, these are some of the drivers that we're keeping an eye on. And then finally, you know, as we look ahead um, uh, at what this will look like in the future, um, it's difficult to predict what we expect is a continued attention from a regulatory perspective, as well as a continued, and if anything, increased attention from an investor perspective, looking to help companies um, move towards and, and transition uh, gradually to, to, to become less dependent on fossil fuels over time. We expect this, this element of transition and of improvement over time to increasingly become a prominent and important way in which investors and those focused on sustainability in particular will start to, to take as a lens in engaging and, and investing in companies. And this will come in hand in hand likely with also um, additional attention paid to uh, those companies that are part of the, the solution, so to speak. So, so those that are participating in green technology deployment or um, those that are helping uh, also increase the capacity from a renewable energy perspective globally. Well, thank you, Amatia, for that backdrop and preview of what we might expect to see from both companies and countries in the years to come. So, Joe, to welcome you into the conversation, from your perspective, Joe, as a portfolio manager, how does the movement towards decarbonization impact the risk-return expectations for companies across different sectors? Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me on your podcast. There's a very distinct relationship between the breadth and depth of the level of transparency we see with companies. The more information we have as investors allows us to make more informed investment decisions. And the reason that I mentioned depth is because with decarbonization, companies that are more proactive in this regard and, and really sincerely committed towards improving their environmental profile does, in fact, help improve a company's risk and return profile. So, for example, where we see companies announce science-based targets and demonstrate glide path and specific commitments to decarbonize, to scale down their use of fossil fuels where these improvements can be quantified, this can be a key differentiator. And I think about this similarly to how I view changes in a company's balance sheet. For example, when a company demonstrates they can generate more cash flow or when a highly levered company pays down debt and the balance sheet strengthens. Generally, we see that company's cost of capital improves. Less interest expense, it means better margins, so there's a direct financial benefit and a feedback loop when these financial metrics improve. Now, the same thing goes for decarbonization metrics. As material non-financial data gets better, just like financial data improves, we see a direct link on the capital side. Now, it's, it's one thing for a company to, to throw out an arbitrary target of carbon reduction, but it's 
quite another situation when a company adopts science-based targets, which, as the name implies, is an initiative to scientifically calculate targets for a company's contribution to decarbonization. They provide a defined path for companies to reduce emissions along three main components. And now I won't get into all the detail, but it includes things like carbon budgeting and scenario analysis, which if executed properly, essentially future-proofs the company's climate risk, which is incredibly important. And, and there's evidence that companies that do these types of things do, in fact, enjoy better access to the capital market, so lower cost of capital, better returns on invested capital. And what I like to say is that the holy grail here, uh, which is multiple improvement. So uh, the companies that do this well see higher PE ratios. They see higher EBITDA multiples relative to peers, which creates another very, very positive and very powerful feedback loop to shareholders. Now, intuitively, it's an important conclusion that the majority of the companies that can make the most impact, the companies largely in scope for carbon transition, they typically operate in the industrial, transport, energy, and utility sectors. So, you know, think of that as some of the more cyclical areas of the, of the economy and clearly companies that use or produce fossil fuel energy. Joe, running with maybe the energy sector for a few moments, we've seen volatility across the commodity complex and oil and natural gas prices in particular, uh, they have been rising over the past year. So, Joe, as sure. a sustainably focused investor, how do you approach investing in this sector? Sure. So, Dan, it's a great question. We get it a lot. And, and, and over the last 12 months, oil prices are up over 50%. If you look at Brent or West Texas Intermediate Natural Gas, uh, prices are up around 40% as you know, we've seen the economy recover coming out of COVID. Uh, we've seen some adverse weather events and, and obviously supply issues create more of an imbalance in the market. And this, despite our, our best intentions as a society to move towards cleaner energy and, and continue to increase our adoption of renewable energy, we're still relatively early in the technology adoption cycle in terms of the green pivot. So fossil fuel energy is still necessary. And as a sustainable investor, we do manage some equity strategies that, that, that are in fact fossil fuel free. And we have some clients that ask us specifically to exclude energy companies from their portfolios, which we certainly accommodate. But my team also needs to outperform traditional investment benchmarks. So if we see an alpha opportunity, an undervalued company, and we're comfortable with the ESG profile, then we'll own the stock. It, it does get a bit tricky with some of the heavy industry companies and the energy exploration and production companies in particular. Over the last couple of decades, we've been really thoughtful about our approach. And while we do own a few companies tied to oil and gas, we're extremely selective, as you, as you can imagine. And so, for, for example, one of the companies that we've held in the portfolio, uh, one of our global portfolios for over five years, is a Norwegian-based energy company that is in the process of moving away from offshore energy production into wind and solar energy products uh, pro projects. They have science-based targeting, which, um, again, and they're, they're supportive of the Paris Agreement and are on target to becoming a net zero energy company through their substantial investment in renewable energy. Okay, Joe, thank you for that. So maybe moving on to our second focus area, Amantia, in addition to the global net zero movement, companies are also increasingly focusing on social issues as well. So Amantia, following the widespread social justice activism back in 2020, what were some of the largest diversity, equality, and inclusion developments that enacted actual change in companies in 2021? And where do you see this going in the year ahead? 
Thanks, Dan. And so social issues um, and really that S of ESG is something that we have always talked about. But over the last 18 months, um, despite and, and in addition to the global focus on climate, we've also seen a uh, focusing in on social issues, and in particular things like diversity, equity, and inclusion, and, and generally the inclusion of all in the workplace. Um, this, we expect, uh, will continue to be a trend for 2022 as well. Now, to your, to your specific question, what were some of the areas where we've seen less progress? Um, some of the things we've talked about over the course of last year in this podcast and, and this conversation. So, for example, in the U.S., one milestone um, uh, uh, development uh, of the summer of 2021 was the SEC approval of the NASDAQ um, a, a proposed rule to, to require diversity-related disclosure for all companies that are listed on that exchange, both those that are, that are domestic, U.S.-based, as well as those that are uh, internationally domiciled and also are listing on the NASDAQ. And, and this mandatory uh, disclosure that will kick in, um, you know, in, in, in years to come, will require companies to share um, the, the diversity in terms of gender, LGBTQ identity, race and ethnicity, and, and anything else that is relevant in the local context at the board level for all of these companies. And in addition, it will require companies to have at least two diverse board directors or explain to investors why they do not have any. Uh, and this will begin by 2025. So this is really one example from the U.S. Um, we've seen similar developments coming from the U.K., from other parts of Europe. And in particular, um, if you look over in Asia, there's been a different angle into thinking about social issues that are really pushing companies to, to pay attention and to start to respond. So in China specifically, we saw this focus on, on the common prosperity um, concept uh, that really shook markets in China over the last um, you know few months of 2021 as the government clamped down on after-school education sector and broadly started looking at China's wealth gap um, that is widening and, and thinking about how this is related to the private sector. Now. We don't expect that these policies in China will um, have impact across all sectors of the economy. But interestingly, what we have seen um, has been an increased um, response, almost like a knee-jerk reaction uh, from a corporate social responsibility perspective from a lot of companies um, based in China that that kind of were, were focusing on highlighting their immediate um, social responsibility policies that they had in place. Now, while that was likely a short-term reaction to government policy, what we expect to see over this year and in the future is um, additional honing in of longer-term strategic shifts when it comes to, again, things like employee treatment, human capital development, and so forth. So this we see as, as, a, as a trend, really as a tide that is focusing attention on these issues. And what we expect this to mean is likely an improvement um, in the way that companies are being, uh, you know, are, are being transparent to investors in terms of how they are managing these social is- issues in their operations and potentially in some cases in their supply chains as well. What we saw again in 2021 that was interesting was um, a, a significant increase in the share of uh, DE&I related shareholder resolutions. 
that were filed, as well as an increase in the proportion of those that were uh, passed or accepted by shareholders as compared to every other year prior. This, as a trend, is, again, something that we expect to continue in this coming year with additional momentum and with very specific areas of focus, like transparency, um, like, like compensation policies and packages, like uh, employee arbitration agreements, um, and so forth, which will, should continue to push companies to uh, want to become and, and stay as leaders on uh, the S of ESG. Thank you, Amatia. So, Joe, turning back to you as regulation and shareholder engagement become increasingly focused on social change, how do we expect companies' bottom lines to be affected? Maybe, Joe, you can offer some examples of a few S-type considerations sure. that you look at. Right. So, well, at a, at a high level, companies that, that can create a workplace environment to attract and retain talented employees generally are going to be some of the more successful companies. So we look at turnover metrics and hiring policies. We look at data on worker experiences to help gauge how, how good a company is at creating a strong workplace culture. Uh, companies that have better engineers, better scientists, better managers, and better employee-facing teams that have higher retention will see a better SG&A profile, so lower, lower cost profile. Um, they'll see lower employment costs, and, and even if they pay higher wages, in many cases, because turnover is so disruptive and expensive, they're generally better off for doing that. So um, a direct benefit for companies that, that keep their employees happy and have a work environment where employees feel safe and, energ and energized is, is really, really the goal. Um, a couple of examples, there's a, a U.S.-based warehouse retailer that we've owned for over five years that pays higher wages and, and they also pay really, um, you know, really strong uh, benefits to their employees. And this is a key differentiator when we look at the S pillar of that company versus other peers. That flows directly through to, to lower uh, lower overhead, lower sales, SG&A, as I said earlier. And over the last five years, when you just look at the stock price, it's up over 230%. So there's clearly a direct benefit, especially over the last year, where there's been a, a, a large shortage of employees in the retail sector in, in particular. Another example is a, a German semiconductor company that has uh, really robust employee engagement. They report 80% uh, overall employee satisfaction. They publish detailed statistics on workforce distribution of gender, age, and nationalities. They have 15% women in management positions, and they're targeting 20%. They also have a 20% gender diversity target as part of the, the management team's uh, longer-term incentives plan. We've actually engaged with them uh, on a number of specific issues uh, on human capital and DEI explicitly. Uh, we're encouraging them to raise this target of, of 20% gender diversity and also broaden out their definition of diversity to include things like the disability. Uh, we're also working with them to see how they can influence their suppliers. This is a really important element of what we do uh, and, and, and really encourage their suppliers to adopt similar practices and policies uh, which will help change the technology ecosystem as, as there continue to be labor shortages in the semiconductor space in, in particular. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate the example. So if we're moving into our third focus area for today, Amatia, in addition to shareholder engagement and regulations related to DE&I, that's diversity, equity, and inclusion, the larger ESG landscape is also being altered and increased regulation on transparency and ESG responsibility. So Amatia, could you please highlight some of these developments and 
how they affect our investors as they work to create holistic, sustainable portfolios? Thanks, Ben. So, so really, I mean, this is, uh, we're seeing almost like the, the end of the beginning here when it comes to the focus of regulators globally on sustainable investing. And, excuse me, what I mean by the end of the beginning is really for the past, uh, call it five years or so, what we've seen is a continuous focus among regulators around um, helping markets understand and think about what sustainability really means. And different jurisdictions have taken different angles and different approaches into this. One of the key milestones that, that we saw happen and, and really cement uh, over the last year was um, the European Commission, so the EU's uh, executive arm, um, Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, or the SFPR, which had been under discussion and, and uh, kind of consultation for some time, was approved in 2020, and really took effect into March, in March of 2021. The SFDR requires uh, all uh, you know, managers that are serving EU domiciled clients to um, to start to report in terms of and, and bring transparency in terms of the um, uh, percent of holdings that they own that are aligned to the European Union defined uh, taxonomy for sustainable investments, which is another piece of the EU domiciled or, or kind of EU driven regulation. And this is important because it sets um, for the, the world really one sample, one type of template in which uh, regulators could start to, to impose some transparency on markets, which is a, a fairly um, regulator-driven definition of sustainability. And this is something that um, that has had important ripples across the world because, uh, you know, even though some managers may not have EU domiciled clients, um, they still will be investing potentially in companies that have to also comply uh, with EU-based regulation around co- corporate sustainability disclosure. And therefore, you know, we're, we're starting to see this, this ripple effect of this EU-based regulation across the world. Now, as I mentioned, this is one template of what we've seen. Um, we expect that the, the U.S. will, uh, although it hasn't yet, uh, will also issue similar kind of transparency-inducing um, uh, expectations and, and, and rules in the markets uh, coming from the SEC in particular. The SEC chair um, announced late in the summer um, of last year that uh, we, we should expect this guidance to come out by the end of 2021, and, and um, really we're, we're really waiting for it to come out in, in, in weeks to come at this point. Um, it's unlikely that the U.S. will take the exact same approach as the EU, and yet, you know, this is another example of how regulators here in this market are coming in and are and are asking for additional transparency from both asset managers um, as well as from companies on things like climate risk or ESG topics. And then, you know, I just mentioned two markets that we've seen this type of regulation come out of Japan, come out of Singapore, uh, and, and really countries across the world trying to find what is the version that works best for them. Now, what means, what this means for investors is really two things. One is that over time, over the long term, we expect, um, that, uh, all of this pressure from, from regulators and legislators will result in additional transparency and will minimize the risks of um, over-promising and under-delivering in terms of uh, sustainability objectives as well as sustainability outcomes or impacts, to use another word. So over the longer term, we, we see this as, as being 
positive um, for investors. Over the medium term, what we're likely to see is also some um, challenges with with investors that are operating across legislations and jurisdictions and, and companies also that are operating across jurisdictions as they try to um, adjust and adapt to the different regulatory demands. Now, we also hope and, and expect to see that over time there will be greater convergence and greater standardization around taxonomies and terminology, but certainly it won't come without some hurdles in, in the shorter term. Um, and, and this is really why we think that there's an opportunity here for, for clients to, and, and need really, for clients and investors to pay attention to um, and, and really truly understand what are the sustainability claims that um, the that their investments are, are making and seek the help of financial advisors who can help navigate through this landscape. Thank you, Amatia. Uh, Joe, anything you would like to add on this topic in the way of how investors can take advantage of increasing transparency and standardization in sustainable investing? And will such changes from your vantage point create any hurdles that are worth noting? Sure. Maybe I'll make just a, a few points here. I mean, globally, there's, there's there's been strong demand for common language on sustainable investing. I think that's pretty clear to those that are active in the space. And, and, and this need for the the an apples to apples comparison on on data, um, variability uh, and omissions in data creates a lot of confusion in the market, and it, it also I think frustrates investors. The transparency and standardization efforts sh- should bring comfort to investors as robust standards can help to mitigate the risk of, of greenwashing, which is a big issue, and help asset owners make informed choices about the actual sustainability characteristics of their investments. Europe, as Amantia said, is, is well ahead of the U.S. in terms of setting sustainable investing standards with SFDR uh, that went into effect in March of last year. And so SFDR has meant that managers need to provide details into how they account for ESG and, and other factors in their selection process for individual securities in the portfolio, which should hopefully mean greater greater clarity and more transparency for investors. And then just finally, on the potential hurdles, uh, you've got things like poor, poor data quality. That, that's a big issue. Short-term confusion while uh, regulations are being rolled out. Uh, excessive prescriptiveness could, could restrict innovation and choice in the market, which obviously is a uh, is, is a poor outcome. Um, and, and companies are, are juggling literally hundreds of different ESG regulations as codes and standards are being developed around the world. And finally, the the unique nature of a company's operations may make like-for-like comparisons difficult across uh, across even similar industries. So uh, a a lot of challenges and and definitely some hurdles along the way. Great. Well, Joe, thank you. And thank you, Amatia, for both dropping by UBS on air, spending some time with their financial advisors, and for sharing all of the insights that you did with us on today's podcast. Appreciate it. Thanks very much. Thanks for having us, Dan. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.